What the? Mike, did you pick this? What? Hey, welcome to the Wise Guys Podcast. I'm Dr. Michael Terrian. And I'm Scott Lieb. We're two friends who are following Jesus into the joys and challenges of everyday life. We, it's going. It's going. It's going. <laughs> so we, we're starting. Talking about off the hip. Yeah. From the hip. Off the hip. From from the hip. Off the uh, off the from cuff. the hip. from the cuff off the cuff off the cuff from the cuff off the hip. Okay, what we're trying to say is that um, we really <laughs> just don't well, know what we're talking about yeah, today. Well, yeah, no, that's not true. We do know what we're talking about today, but we're just jumping into it quick. We are because you because m- I got to get on an airplane. <clears throat> yeah, you're doing a, a global book tour. Ha! Huh. <clears throat> no, not really. But <laughs> that'd be awesome, though. I am traveling. Well, maybe, maybe someday. Maybe someday, because this the new book is uh, maybe that's the thing that's gonna. You know, it's good to dream. It's good to dream about <laughs> yeah, those things. Right. Yeah. Well, I hope people read it. But yeah, we wanted to we wanted to talk uh, about the new book that I just published, titled Yeah, what's it called? Wounded Witness. Ooh. Why? Reclaiming the church's unity in a time of crisis. Mm, so much right there. Why is it called Wounded Witness, and what kind of crisis are we in? Yeah. Well, it's called Wounded Witness because, because I think right now the church is unable to be an effective witness to the world because we're very divided uh, within or among ourselves. Mm. And uh, the book is really addressing that problem. And um, we can we can get into that a little bit more uh, in detail in this podcast. But um, but you know, so it's reclaiming the church's witness uh, in a time of 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 crisis. Yeah, and we're in a time of crisis, both I think within the church uh, because of many factors, uh, especially in the West, a lot of declining registries and uh, a real loss of the sense of the supernatural and transcendent and practice of religion and therefore that's directly affecting our parishes every every Sunday but also we're dealing with a crisis in the world and part of the argument I do try to make in the book is that there's a direct correlation between the one and the other so you know we we often tell ourselves the story that that the world is attacking the church and and so the problems of the decline of faith in the church are to be blamed on the world out there but i i try to make the argument that that's actually not the case mm. that it's really the 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 kind of disintegration of authentic witness discipleship evangelization within the church that's actually hurting the church and as a consequence of that, the world is losing its way. Hmm. So would you say historically, when the church is doing, like when the church is at its best, the world is kind of also at its best? Would you say that? And, and vice versa, when the church seems to really be struggling, the world seems, is, is that a correlation? Well, this is what I do know. Be, but that's I can't answer that in in too black and white of a way because okay. because it's not that clean mm-hmm. it's not that clear cut. But I will say this that when the church is healthy internally, 
the church is designed to grow, and it does grow. Mm. So you can, for example, you, I, I would say that the healthiest, one of the healthiest local churches in the world is Africa, is in Africa on the African continent, and they're growing. Mm. Um, there's just a level of authenticity of how the Christian life is lived out, how the communities live out their communal life. That is very attractive. Whereas in the West, I think we've become very sophisticated and we've, there's lots of things. I, I, it's, I could rattle yeah. off things, but we should, we should dig into it. But there's things going on in the West. But part of what I'm, so to, to answer your question, yes, when the church is healthy, the church grows. And when the church grows, society becomes a healthier place because there is, to use Jesus' own imagery, there's, there's, a, there's a salt that um, preserves the world mm. from its corruptibility. Yeah. There's a light that shines into the darkness. Yeah. There's a city on the hill to which everyone can take refuge. Mm -hmm. These are Jesus' images, images from the Sermon on the Mount. There's leaven in the midst of society as well. Yeah. So, so society can find healing. Society can find direction, purpose, transcendent orientation. But when the church is unhealthy and, 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 and focused inwardly on our own internal problems, like priest scandals, for example, the credibility of the church's witness is profoundly undermined. It can go so far as even to make God seem to be a liar in the eyes of, of kind of the people who have left or, mm. or stand outside the church kind yeah. of condemning and criticizing her for her problems. So... Or so, even for people that are still inside that that are yes, struggling. Well, to, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know this is not probably not part of your book, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. What like why do you think the church is growing and vibrant in a place like, you know, the African continent and declining so rapidly in America or Yeah, in, in the West. Well, boy, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's a very complex issue. Um, and Simplify for a dummy like me. Yeah. Well, the history of the West is, it's also a long history. I think a lot of people just see the decline, like they're like, oh, since Vatican II. But the truth is, is um, Christianity has been on a slow and steady decline more or less since the time of the Reformation. The Reformation presented a huge crisis to Western Christianity, and that crisis has many aspects and dimensions to it. But some of the, what I would, you know, to maybe identify a general problem is that I think that Western Christendom became too self-reliant on its own sources of wealth, power, influence, you know, which in in and categories of the gospel is really worldly. Mm. Even in the name of Jesus, you, you can't attain a supernatural end necessarily with worldly means. So um, as, as the centuries unfolded, I think Christendom became, um, I, I call it in the book, a kind of Eurocentric, uh, I think I call it a Christocentric <laughs> European imperialism, like this idea that in the name of Christ we're going to expand an empire, which is Western civilization. Mm -hmm. And we did that. 
I mean, I don't want to talk about the missionaries like the Franciscans, the Jesuits who went to the far corners of the earth to really proclaim the gospel and truly evangelize. And they made many converts um, to the faith. But the, the colonists that came on the heels of those, those you know, missions uh, did bad things in the name of, of the nation state that professed itself to be Christian. So, you know, think of slavery and... Mm. And then, you know, the wars of religion in the post-reformational period, Christians killing each other, you know, because of ethnic and national loyalties. I mean, fundamentally racism. That, that, it, we don't think of it that way, but there was a lot of racism and not just white to black, but French to German and German to Polish, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, the Slovaks, mm-hmm. you know, Italians, Spanish. I mean, you know, and, and it's kind of ironic as an aside, we, we see that kind of played out even in the United States with, you know, all the immigration to this country and all the ethnic parishes set up. There was a lot of racism, you know, like mm. the Irish and the Italians and the, and the, and the Germans. I mean, they didn't want to worship in the same churches. <laughs> so it, it, you know, over centuries, that kind of stepping away from the foundational principles of God's kingdom, you can profess things, but if you don't embody them in your in your institutions and in your customs and so on and so forth, I mean, you know, it's not all or nothing. I want to be clear about that. I mean, it's a mixed bag, but the general trend was towards a kind of privatization of religion uh, in, the, in the direction of a kind of, um, you know, uh, primacy to, to, to nationality and ethnicity. Mm. And eventually that system broke down and what stepped into the void was the Enlightenment, which was an attempt to really secularize the heart of society. But, but that was an alleged solution to a much deeper problem, which was the problem of the wars of religion and Christians fighting with each other, which Christ is so clear is just quite simply unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, over centuries of this unfolding, you know, eventually the whole thing blows up at, you know, World War One and World War Two. We should step back and say, how in the world did Christendom envelop itself in total war in such a manner that, you know, we practically annihilated? I mean, we annihilated entire cities yeah. that were built around monasteries originally. They were yeah. built up around monasteries and built up around you know, beautiful cathedrals and, you know, cathedrals became ground zero for bombing campaigns. And I, I, you know, and again, you can blame that all on the, those secular idealists. Well, that's kind of more towards the end of the story. The question is, is how did that, you know, how did those ideologies become so persuasive and so influential? Well, it's in the absence of something, absence of something which ought to have been there, which is the heart of Christ. And, and so, you know, I think that, you know, I, I use the analogy in the book of, of the problem of tooth decay. We typically think of tooth decay as being <laughs> an external, you know, problem of, you know, too much sugar on the tooth enamel and that yeah. it wears the enamel down so you put fluoride on it and, and it and it strengthens your enamel and then you can prevent cavities. But the truth is is that tooth decay is an internal problem of, of the demineralization of your teeth from a really poor diet. Ancient people 
didn't have all this modern dentistry and they didn't have all of the tooth decay and the crooked mm. teeth that that's really a modern problem like when i say modern i mean from about 1500 on with the you know sort of discovery of white flour and refined sugar and things like this high consumption of carbohydrates tooth decay and all these things so I use that as an analogy to say it, it's very similar. What, what, what was happening <laughs> to the, to the uh, Western diet was happening to the Western soul. Uh, we were decaying from the inside out because w- we were corrupted by worldly ambition, a desire to advance the causes of quote-unquote the kingdom using uh, you know political, military, other yeah. means. Well, you know, there's no... There's just no excuse for that. Yeah. And that's not to say that popes and bishops didn't condemn that kind of thing. Right. They did. But right. the population of the people, uh, in large measure, kind of went along with a lot of that stuff. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, so that's you know sort of an underlying premise of the book is that we find ourselves today in this difficult position as a church, as a wounded witness, because of centuries of... Of, of problems that have uh, plagued yeah. the church in Western, Western uh, right. Christendom. So. How, how does, um, uh, you know, it, it seems like it's a heart problem. Like if, if, if people's hearts are truly converted, um, you know, it, it's hard to, hmm, how do I want to say this? It seems like it's easier to change somebody's mind than it is to change somebody's heart. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but I feel like when your heart is truly changed, um, that there's something deep in that that is like uh, that's hard to hard to switch back over. Or so how the heck, you know, was it was it an issue that that we weren't. We're just, we weren't focused on the conversion of hearts or, you know what I mean? Like, or that there was an influence where somebody, where our hearts were more geared or converted to something else than it, than they were to Jesus. And how did we let it, how did we kind of let ourselves get to this, to this point? Well, I, yes, I would agree wholeheartedly that it's a matter of the heart. Ha uh-huh. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. You, okay. Yeah, I got it. That was good. That was good. Yeah. No, I mean, it really is a matter of the heart. Um, part of what I argue, especially towards the end of the book, is that we, we really abandoned Jesus' methods of disciple-making and evangelization, largely. And that's because we became a cultural faith um, where people grew up in the faith because they were, as we use the term today, cradle Catholics, like they were born and raised in a Catholic culture, Mm. a culture which we presumed didn't need to continue being evangelized. So we catechized, we taught, uh, and, and that wasn't always so easy because when you have a, uh, and you know, it, it's not always so easy to catechize people if you go back several hundred years, you know what I mean? It's not like we had a elaborate school system in Europe, for example. It's more of, something that happened in the United States mm-hmm. much more extensively right. to have this elaborate school system, you know, in the 20th century. we Probably the marvel of church history to have that kind of school system. But that didn't quite exist. So, you know, you handed on the faith largely in the, in the home, and you, you passed it on by way of custom and culture, mm-hmm. which isn't a bad thing. 
but you know, it, it's just easy um, uh, to to drift and get off course, and to kind of become forgetful. Um, and of course, if you have a largely illiterate population that's not reading the the scriptures, they're not necessarily privy directly to the stories that that animate for us and bring to life the person of Jesus and how he actually did things and yeah. made and made disciples. So, um, you know, I, I just and then you know Europe. Because of the scientific revolution and the consolidation of knowledge that that happened within the university system that emerged in the in the in the medieval period, you know, knowledge is power, and with knowledge comes power, and mm. and and we we built civilizations that were more powerful than pretty much any civilization in the history of the world, perhaps. I mean. Barring the ancient Roman Empire, maybe the you know right. the, the, the Chinese empires of the ancient world, but you know we we created a a very powerful continent mm. based upon scientific knowledge and and uh, our ability to um, command you know the forces of nature increasingly. I mean, yeah. it, it's sort of again, it's a process that unfolds through the age of enlightenment and all the way up through the industrial revolution so it's kind of a progressive situation but but what happens is, is you become reliant on the work of your own hands you know you become you can and we see it today in our culture i mean a lot of people just aren't even they don't perceive the need for religion right because we've got smartphones and we've got air conditioning and automobiles and you know it doesn't we just don't feel and that might explain partially why you know, in underdeveloped countries like in Africa, uh, there's more religious faith because there's a greater sense of the transcendent. There's a greater nearness to it because there's less reliance mm. on technology, more yeah. more reliance. They they suffer. They 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 face the same potential danger though, if as they develop and they become more, you know, more sophisticated and technocratic. They can yeah. very easily lose that that spiritual fervor just as easily as anybody else did. So it's yeah. not yeah. that they're inherently holier than any other race of people. It's just a it's a recognition that we always have to be converted in every, every generation yeah. in our hearts to the person of Christ, and we need to provide the proper formation and spiritual development and growth of. Every generation of, mm. of Christians, you well, can't take it for granted. Well, it seems to me <clears throat> like, uh, you know, when I think of the word witness, um, I'm thinking of somebody who not only um, has the knowledge, right, because you, you talked about catechesis, so it seems like, for me, and maybe this is maybe this is incorrect, but when I think of catechesis, I think mostly of, like, I'm going to teach you the faith, you know, like, so... It's it's things like uh, I'm I'm joking here, but it's like this was this was Jesus, you know. This is what his shoe size was, and this is what he, you know, kind of like the the informational aspects of things. Um, but like a, a witness it would for me, like an effective witness would be somebody who who has the knowledge, who can go into the world and can say things like. Um, I I love I love the Lord. I love what the Lord is doing in my life. I can I can see what he's doing. I can you know like encounter him in so many ways. So like a witness would be somebody who is whose heart is um 
converted, but then can also back that up by like explaining it, you know, as to why. And I feel like maybe my observation of that wounded part of our witness is that, yeah, we, we've sort of become, it's almost like if we can think it up, let's do it, you know, but let's not, and we've talked about this, I think in a previous podcast, like there's not, there's not that integrated, you know, like we're, we're becoming extremely disintegrated people, you know, like our minds, our hearts, our wills are all sort of like, they're all sort of independently doing their own thing in any given moment, you know? So I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Like what, like, what does that, what does that mean to be, because the integration is the hard part. That's where, that's where like people fall off because they're like, well, that's too hard. You know, if people, if people's witness of their family life is, is uh, brokenness and disintegration, but, but yet, you know, we went to church every Sunday and, but my, my parents were miserable. What I saw was like misery and suffering, um, and no hope or joy. Why would I want to follow that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I know exactly what you're saying. Oh boy. There are so many ways I can try to tackle that. Um, Part of the story of the dissolution and the disintegration of our Christian civilization is the fact that we placed law and obedience to law at the center of our Christian life in the modern period. And we did it in a very intense way. And when you say modern period, what, I mean what? like roughly 1500 to the okay. middle of the 19, you know, ni- you know 1960s okay. is sort of like the last you know, the, the modern world kind of collapsed and what emerges culturally on the on the ground level for most people is post-modernity. Mm. Um, and some of the characteristics of modernity would be, for example, a, 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 a kind of, well, gosh, there's so many things I can say about it. Let me just say this, <laughs> is, is that law becomes the ordering principle of social life, like really, like like a really rigid, very formal, very authoritarian and and the the underlying assumption in that in that approach is that we could somehow legislate sin out of the human person mm. and we would use the mechanisms of the state to do that well there's all sorts of things wrong with that approach and it was a colossal disaster um for so many reasons there was obviously lots of abuse of power mm-hmm. both on the national on the ecclesiastical and on the parental level. Um, first of all, it doesn't work that way. You can't eradicate sin. The old law, St. Paul tells us, can only condemn. Mm. It doesn't save. So we became really an Old Testament-minded people in a New Testament covenantal context where we thought, oh, yeah, we just have to legislate. And with legislation comes a lot of shaming and a lot of public humiliation and a lot of harsh forms of punishment because you're going to kind of basically try to scare the hell out of people, mm. literally. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it doesn't work. Jesus, that's not what he did. So to your point, what Jesus did do is he came to transform and heal the human heart through offering his forgiveness, his mercy, his love, his friendship, his companionship, 
his identity, his association with us. Mm. It was all relational. And it was it and it was all about sharing the communion of love that he enjoys with the Father and the Holy Spirit with all of us by bringing us into that communion of love as the place where we find healing, where we find the courage to repent of our sin, where we find the love and mercy we need to be truly liberated and freed from everything that really holds us in bondage and binds us to, you know, dysfunctional patterns of, you know, immoral behavior and mm. brokenness, woundedness. So so there's a whole psychology to that that was really lost in the modern period because we made law the center. Mm-hmm. And so part of that project of that kind of modern project was also a kind of rationalism, meaning that we could argue and think our way to a better world. And then we could apply our knowledge to... Um, the principles and laws of physics and create technologies that would liberate us from the problems of sin and the fallen nature that we have. Well, that hasn't, that's, we've been helped in some very practical ways, you know, like I'm glad I can wash my hands with warm water in my sink. <laughs> but non, modern technologies do absolutely nothing for the human heart, mm. they do nothing for the interior self, for, the, for inner freedom. Um, we're discovering more and more with every year that goes by just how wounded we increasingly become because of the, the, the use of modern technologies without any moral guidance, without mm. any wisdom. So the other side of the modern period is this kind of hyper-rationalism where it's all about truth, truth, truth. It's all about what we know. It's all because knowledge is power. With knowledge, we can do things. We can exercise a certain command and control over nature and liberate ourselves from the things that we feel limited by in, mm. in, in our fallen condition. Well, there's a lot of pride in that, a lot of arrogance, a lot of misguided, you know. I mean, we can also blow each other up and annihilate one another with that same knowledge. You know, we can uh, exterminate entire races of people, um, you know, we can destroy the environment. We can go on and on. Yeah. So to your point, Jesus' fundamental mission was to transform the interior life of the human person and thereby to transform our social relations. Because when you have whole and healthy people who are seeking true holiness, you can create community mm. and you can overcome your differences, and you can learn how to forgive one another. You can learn how to be merciful towards one another's faults and weaknesses. Instead, what we're doing is just using weapons, essentially, to try to defeat our enemies by destroying them. And and that sounds like a harsh contrast, but that's the choice that we have before us. Yeah. Um, So... Yeah, it's a different way of answering the question than no, maybe you were thinking. No, it's really no, no, no. It's really, really good. I think that um, you know, just kind of applying this to my own sort of journey of faith, um, the yeah, the the legal the legal aspect of things, like the the very rigid right and wrong thing. Um, and I'm I'm not dissing, you know, the right and wrong that that nor grew am up I in. nor. Am I denying the function and purpose sure. of law? Sure, right. No, I know. We had a whole podcast on that. Yeah, we, <laughs> we need law. But yes, but... But, but law it, doesn't save. 
No, right, right. That's such a perfect point, and that's I guess that's what I'm getting at is that the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, the charisma. So, so here's my the question. Grace here's of my Jesus question. Christ, that's what saves. Amen. One hundred percent. I had to come to a discovery of that sort of uh, on my own, outside of the the kind of the structure of what I grew up in. You know, because I I don't know why uh, that seems to be so. That conversation seems to be so absent in in so many places. Like. I had discovered that in my own. Here's a great, as you're talking, it made me think of this. I was, you know, watched this podcast, but not a podcast, but a YouTube video by Father Michael Gately. Uh, I forget what it was about. But anyway, he said this thing that I was like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. He's like, I've been to hundreds of churches across the world. He's like, I've never been in one where I've seen a statue or a church dedicated to the sacred brain of Jesus. You know, and I'm like, man, that is so good because we, you know, like we, it's so easy to spend most of our time in our, in our brains, like in our minds. And, but, but it is about you know, such an important part of it. The fundamental part is really about the conversion of the heart. But I, you know, and I, it's so, it's so weird to me how much time we spend uh, in our, in our minds and how little time we spend in our hearts. And I, I don't, I, you know, as a, a culturally, I don't know if that's because, like, um, the work of the heart, and this, I'm speaking again from my own experience, the work of the heart is really hard. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, like, being faced with the reality of, of the disorderedness of, of our hearts and then being invited into a process of like, well, what are you gonna do about that? Like, mm-hmm. how much? Because, wow, the 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 invitation to let go, to surrender, to trust, you know, to in in the change that is, uh, sort of the outcome of that is that that's so hard. Again, that goes back to my whole like, it's easier for me to change my mind than it is for me to, you know, like be invited to change my heart. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a, that's right on the number there. That's, that's like perfectly well said. It, you know, the, it isn't that we, that truth isn't absolutely essential. It's not that our intellects, our minds are not really, you know, an essential part of who we are. But, you know, we've, we've heard this said, but, we're saved by a who. And if we don't know the who in a personal way, like as a person who is loving me, a person, in that relational context, then we won't understand the what of our faith properly. And this is what I see all over the church. A lot of people know what we believe. Mm. They don't know who we believe in. And they have distorted images of Jesus, of God, of the Father. They have distorted understandings of what love really is or what mercy is. They use the language, they use the terms, they got the propositions right, but the spirit that enlivens those is not present. Because in order to understand what it is we believe, which is the catechetical enterprise, we have to know who we believe in first. Yeah. And when we know who we believe in, then we'll 
properly be able to understand and appropriate all of the different things yeah. that comprise of our faith. So it's not an either-or thing, right? but there's an order to things by which things fall into their proper place. And if we don't get that order right, things get amiss. And that's part of the problem in the church today is, and, and we know this because we are out there in the field doing ministry with people that go to church every week. They don't, they tell us they don't, they never knew God right. yeah. cared yeah. about them in this way. They never right. understood God's love for them. Uh, they live in a place of self-loathing. They think God is standing there ready, ready to slap them in the face whenever they step out of line. Mm-hmm. You know, they just, people have very, very distorted images of God, and they live in a lot of shame. And 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 it it's all well-intended because they do desire God, and they desire their faith, but they feel like a beaten puppy. And that's not God that's causing them to feel that way. Yeah. That's humans that are misrepresenting in the name of God yeah. who God is to the people. And and so that's a problem. It's a cultural problem in the church that we have to fix. And we only fix by going back to the person, to the master himself, and 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 learning him, mm-hmm. studying him, um, loving him, receiving and accepting him into our hearts. And then he'll teach us. He'll, as the master, he'll teach us the right yeah. truths. But, and I think what's interesting is like, I mean that that kind of woundedness is, like you said, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it was me. You know, I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a process of like, um, dealing with those wounds, N- not not uh, intentionally inflicted upon me, but just maybe like conditioned or, um, you know. Re- sort of raised in a model that that looking back I'm like oh man that did not you know that didn't go uh didn't go as far as it needed to go and and um but also you know like as you were as you were just talking there there's a lot of language or or uh, words in that that I imagine where we just are um especially maybe especially as growing up in, in, in you know like a german kind of family, like just a, a real fear of kind of what healthy intimacy, you know, or a lack of understanding of like healthy intimacy and stuff like that, that, that Jesus is calling us to, but it's like, you know, the reaction is, eh, oh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go there, you or, know. Or the other extreme is, you know, uh, this is the, you know, his majesty, the king, you know, you right. should prostrate yourself and grovel at his feet and hope he doesn't <laughs> right. hit you. Right. I, I mean, seriously. Yeah, like, yeah there's no, a don't kind do of rigid, to, like, yeah. self-loathing kind of... And and it's like the reverence that we have for Jesus comes from a place of deep love. It's like I reverence my wife. Like, yeah. I respect her more than just about anybody in the world because of how much I love her. I wouldn't dare... Do something to offend her. I can't even think of offensive right. things because that that frightens me. Like, oh, I could never do that. I, I love her sure. too much. That love comes from a place of deep intimacy, connectedness, warmth. Yeah. The experience of being loved by her, the experience of being in relationship with her, of journeying through this life with her. Yeah. That's what God wants with his people. Right. And I and I would say this in that analogy you just used. Like you know, my my uh, fallen part of me can 
do things that that are like irreverent towards my wife or and but when I do I'm not afraid that my wife is going to just pack up and leave immediately you know like I know that that she uh there's mercy there or that there's you know because I'm I'm able to be I'm able to realize how I offended her or how I you know like hurt her and to just go and have real contrition in my heart and be like, oh my God, right. I'm and such a jerk. I'm so sorry. And, you know, like mend that relationship versus kind of a f- just a fear, digging in yeah. or digging in and justifying yeah. and being like defensive or whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, the other thing too is that you, I mean, you know that she loves you and she sees the whole of you. Right. And she loves you because she sees all the good in you and she also sees your fault. Mm-hmm. And she's, she, you know, I mean, any loving spouse is going to, call you to a deeper integration of yourself, a, a deeper um, integrity, more honesty about those places yeah. in yourself. But you, you feel like you can respond to that invitation because it's coming from a place of deep love and appreciation for who you fundamentally are. Yeah. Well, if, if our fallen, imperfect spouses can help us feel that way, how much more? Why would God be any different? I mean... That's just a, a small reflection sure. of God's relationship and yeah. how He views us. Yeah. I, I was at a, I, I gave a talk the other day and I and I asked this question and I, it was a rhetorical question, but I got responses anyway. And the question was, how many of you can look in the mirror, and and honestly look see your reflection, and believe in your heart that 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 God really delights in your existence, and I mean. Every almost everybody in the audience just shook their head no, like with mm. disgust on their face, like no way. Oh wow! And I thought to myself, you see, that's and I was talking about Saint Therese. I said, see, that's that's why Saint Therese is a is a saint because she had so much confidence in God's love for her. Yeah, she knew how little and how weak she was, but that that she wasn't focused on that. She was focused on how much God really loved her and how that love was generously offered at every moment of her existence free of charge you yeah. know like there's no price to pay for that love it just has to be accepted and we just have to live in that place yeah but anyhow well i'm looking it, at the time i know here's one thing i just wanted to say because i i would love yeah and i think you plan on digging into this a little bit more um Obviously, people can buy the book and and uh, read it and prepare themselves for these conversations. But uh, the one thing it makes me think of is that there there was a time in a time in my life where I would always, you know, like the church in quotes. I'm air quoting with my fingers, but the church was always like the bishops, the priest, the pope. Those people, like for me, it's like those people need to take care of these problems. But the the wounded witness I think that you're talking about is like, and in, in when you say church, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's us. It's the billion people that, you know, need to be witnessing in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces. Like the popes, the bishops, obviously that structure is there for a reason. But if we really want change if we want the church to really be what the church is supposed to be, that's got to start, like, it's got to start in my heart, you know, and um, we, we're the church, like, and so um, we got to we gotta sort of 
take that time to to figure out what like where how am I wounded? How am I being a wounded witness in the world? And and I know you uh, there's a lot in the book that you kind of break that open, especially in terms of like um, people's sort of tendency to jump into you know camps and and do that kind of stuff. And, yeah, I mean, if I can make my last comment on that, just because you know the the heart of the book, most of the book is really about the divisions, these little tribes that have formed since Vatican II. Um, and and trying to tell the story of how that's happened and what those different camps are, and what I do is I I I walk through each one and I and I first of all sort of frame out the positive elements of 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 those paradigms is the word I use, um, and it and and identify what the core values that are at stake in those paradigms. But then later in the book, I go through each paradigm and I point out what the blind spots are. And, and then I show how Jesus integrates the core values of the, those paradigms in himself mm-hmm. and in his ministry. Because we can't, the problem with these camps is that we pit core values of the faith against one another. We put the accent in a certain place and then thereby exclude other elements of the faith that are essential. Mm-hmm. And we've and that's what's really wounded the collective witness of the church as a body, as the body of Christ, because we're we're not a unified witness. And like any organization, we have if every organization has a clear purpose and, and there has to be internal unity and alignment against that purpose if you want to achieve it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not what's happening in the church. We all have our own versions about what it means to be a faithful Catholic. And we're divided along all the things that are meant to be unifying to us. The Pope, the liturgy, uh, Christian, you know, the basic life of prayer. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. we, you know, it's like, no, it's got to be this way. No, it's got to be that way. Right. And, and yet we... We, we find ourselves in a church where it's like there's room for all of all of this. Yeah. But we have to really conquer our blind spots because those blind spots become prejudices and those prejudices become attacks on other people. Yeah. So at any rate, that's, well, I'm we, we waiting. will unpack yeah. those those paradigms in future episodes. I'm I'm waiting for my sign to copy so that I haven't gotten my free copies yet. <laughs> You'll get one. <laughs> Trust me. All right. Um, awesome. Is it? Can people buy the book right yeah, now? Yeah, it's available on Amazon. Again, the title is Wounded Witness, Reclaiming the Church's Unity in a Time of Crisis. And it's published by Three Keys uh, Publishing, which is uh, the publishing arm of Divine Renovation. So the foreword of the book is written by Father James Mallon, who many people know uh, as the author of Divine Renovation. Which is also a very cool book. Yeah. But yours is probably cooler. No, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I mean, uh, honestly, Father James's book was was revolutionary. No, for sure, yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, well, get on your plane. Have a safe trip. Where are you going? I'm going down to South Carolina. Mm. Yeah. Nice. I think it's South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, just well, getting on a plane. You'll I get on a plane. They it'll, bought the ticket. It'll just, take you somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Greensboro. Is that in South or North Carolina? Um, I, I, think, I feel like there's a Greensboro, there's like five Greensboros yeah. in every state. Well, 
ignorance of geography here. Sorry. But well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure going down to the Carolinas. Cool. Cool. Because Carolina is on my mind. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. Great way to end that. That was really bad. All right. Okay. Well, have a good one, and we'll uh, talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. The Wise Guys Podcast is a production of Preambule Group, a Catholic ministry dedicated to helping you thrive in the heart of Jesus. Visit us on the web at preambula.org and follow us on social media.